DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We're departing from our usual current affairs driven format this week to bring you a smorgasbord of Euro sounds from the archives of Radio Luxembourg. To Athens' centenary tribute to Maria Callas. Via an intimate exploration of music and morals. My most listened song of 2023 was, um, it was Time Adventure, which is a song from the cartoon Adventure Time with Finn and Jake. And I know this is a moral one because honestly, my moral universe, it, it, it would look like the Kingdom of Ooh. Now, if you wish someone a Happy New Year in German, you do it by telling them to have a guten Rutsch, literally a good slide into the new year. And that is what we wish for you, dear listeners. So we've prepared a show full of sonic delights. First up, a blast from the past. This December marks the 90th anniversary of the launch of Radio Luxembourg, the iconic radio station which, for both good and ill, shaped European culture well beyond the borders of the tiny landlocked country with which it shared its name. Nick Martin has been looking back at the extraordinary history of the Station of the Stars. Like most countries in Europe, throughout the 1920s, Luxembourg was experimenting with the then-new medium of radio. With a tiny population of its own, the country wanted to harness its unique position at the heart of Europe to broadcast to much larger neighbouring countries like France and Germany. But could it build a powerful enough transmitter to reach all of Britain, a distance of up to 900 miles away? Broadcasting on 208 metres, this is your Station of the Stars, Radio Luxembourg. After a year of test broadcasts, Radio Luxembourg's English service took to the air in December 1933 with the aim of challenging the BBC's monopoly. As journalist Nathan Morley, the author of the book The Radio Luxembourg Story, explains, the station quickly gained a large following. You have to remember that at this time, the BBC was churning out a mix of talks and classical music and highbrow programmes, whereas Luxembourg was playing popular songs, comedies, uh, dramas and even American soap operas. So for many people, especially in the working class districts of Britain and the North, it was a breath of fresh air in what was a pretty turbulent media landscape. The BBC and UK government tried several times in the early years to silence Radio Luxembourg, claiming it was broadcasting on an illegal frequency. But listeners continued to flock to the station, and so did many big advertisers, including the hugely popular nighttime drink Ovaltine. Radio Luxembourg's success was, however, very nearly short-lived. Nazi Germany invaded the Grand Duchy in May 1940 and quickly the station became part of Hitler's World War II propaganda machine. William Joyce, an American-born fascist raised in Ireland, became famous for his English-language broadcasts during the war, which opened with the words... Germany calling, Germany calling... Initially broadcast from Hamburg, the recordings of the man the British media dubbed Lord Haw Haw were also broadcast on Radio Luxembourg's frequency. 
David O'Donoghue is the author of a book about Hitler's Irish voices. He said Lord Hawhaw's broadcasts could put the fear of God into many listeners who were already suffering under the Luftwaffe's bombing raids on cities like London, Plymouth and Coventry. If there was a particularly heavy night of bombing, Hawhaw could go on the air the following night and say, you're like rats scurrying into your holes. The Germans are going to win this conflict. Your cities are lying in ruins and we're coming for you tonight. The Germans were hoping that his broadcast would harm the British public's support for the war effort. He didn't succeed in that, but he did succeed in frightening people who were at home, wondering what was happening to their loved ones in the conflict. They could get news via Hawhaw because he read out messages from prisoners of war and that's what they were hoping to hear from. After the war, Radio Luxembourg went back to doing what it did best, appealing to the masses with popular music and later rock and roll. This is Radio Luxembourg, the The station's popularity went far beyond Britain's shores. Its powerful transmitter meant it could often be heard from Finland to Greece. And with Europe divided after the war, the Iron Curtain was certainly no obstruction for Luxembourg to reach the then Soviet bloc of Eastern European countries. Journalist Nathan Morley said the Station of the Stars gave those living under communism a taste of a more liberal way of life. It seeped into the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, and in the 50s and 60s it was attracting tens of millions of listeners by playing Elvis, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and other popular artists. So in many ways for listeners in the Eastern Bloc, Luxembourg was like this unique telescope to the West. And that did concern some of the regimes behind the Iron Curtain. The East Germans thought Luxembourg was operated by the American and West German secret services. Perhaps the most recalled memory of Radio Luxembourg is people listening under the bed covers at night. The transmitter reached further after dark. But even so, listeners had to tolerate the music often fading in and out due to interference from other stations. American Benny Brown, who's still on air in Luxembourg, was a regular host during Radio Luxembourg's later years. Luxembourg as a nation was a quiet, tucked away country in the middle of Europe. Nobody seemed to pay much attention in those days to the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. One time, school kids in the UK were looking at a map, and one of the kids in the classroom said, Wow! Look at this. There's actually a country here named after our radio station. And <laughs> that's indicative of the station's popularity and how deeply it had embedded itself in the UK. By the 1980s, FM in almost CD quality began to dominate the radio landscape. Increasingly, people turned away from Luxembourg, which sounded like it was playing on a low-quality phone speaker. Attempts to put the station on satellite failed, as few people could find it on their TVs. So in December 1992, the station signed off the air for the final time. All right, everybody, time to say goodbye, Luxembourg. Time to say goodbye, Luxembourg. Good 
time to say goodbye to Inside Europe's Nick Martin too. For this year at least, he will of course be back with us again in 2024. Our listener quiz will be back in the new year too, but in the meantime, I'm going to throw this one in for free. Can you guess who said this? Music is a moral law. It gives a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, a charm to sadness, gaiety and life to everything. It is the essence of order and leads to all that is good and just and beautiful. It was the Greek philosopher Plato, and as it turns out, he really might have been onto something. A new study conducted by researchers at Queen Mary University of London and the ISI Foundation in Turin has found a significant link between individuals' musical tastes and their moral values. So, am I the sum of my Spotify playlist? I thought I'd better find out more about this report just to be on the safe side. Here is my conversation with one of the report's senior authors, Dr. Haralampos Saitis, lecturer in digital music processing at Queen Mary University of London's School of Electronic Engineering and Computer Science. For this particular study, our uh, starting point was the Spotify API that provides some features of how instrumental the piece is, you know, whether there is more pure instrumental passages versus passages with lyrics, the danceability, things like the energy, how much energy there is in the signal, uh, more musical things like the mode, if it's a major mode or a minor mode. These are more like music theoretic concepts. And finally, we also looked at what we call low-level signal features. We considered the distribution of notes or pitch, and we also looked at uh, timbre. So, you know, you could consider, for example, um, uh, hip-hop songs versus country songs, right, have a different way that its tenor tends to sound. And this comes from the different instrumentation, the different production techniques. That's fascinating. I mean, what what could you, just taking those two examples there, hip-hop and and country, what could you tell me about the differences between the moral universes of a typical hip-hop listener and a typical country listener? So people that listen to to country music or this kind of music, also perhaps more uh, Christian-like music, they tend to be associated with uh, values that have to do with authority, purity, loyalty. So these are often described together as more binding or in-group traits. So these are people that value more, you know, being part of a community. And also these traits tend to also be associated more with uh, more conservative worldviews. Uh, hip-hop, on the other hand, uh, both in terms of musical features, but also in terms of lyrical content, is more about values of fairness and, and kind of the opposite of, let's say, authority or loyalty, which agrees with musicological research that shows that you know hip-hop tends to be what we would call a, a reactionary type of, of music. So sort of anti-authoritarian. Exactly, yeah. That's so interesting. Maybe I could ask you a question about uh, application. If we sort of take the, this, this research and then 
apply it uh, in the real world? What, what might applications of it look like? This kind of understanding could help better tailor recommendation systems. So, you know, personalized recommendation. Oh, hang on. Isn't, isn't that, is, couldn't there be dangers there? I mean, if my morality and my listening preferences are so intertwined and if an algorithm is going to be steering me in one direction, are there potential for sort of abuse or inadvertent sort of siloing of people? It did, indeed. Of course, it is. It is. There's this a lot of important ethical issues around this line of research. And one has always to be very careful in how um, uh, these things are framed and how they are being researched. But indeed, yeah, there, there could be underlying, uh, I'm not sure danger is the right word here, but uh, let's say ethical issues that would need to be always considered very carefully. When uh, when I pitched this interview to my editor, her response was, "Oh, oh, oh! You'll you'll have to get an analysis of your listening preferences." But my immediate response was really defensive. So you know, it is it, it is something that we intuit, isn't it? We know that we're revealing something intimate about ourselves when we share our our song preferences. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's that's a very good point. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, having been forewarned, um, might I be able to sort of give you my my top five and and see what you think? Okay. Let's try. Um, so the first one, apparently, my most listened song of 2023 was um, it was Time Adventure, which is a song from the cartoon Adventure Time with Finn and Jake. And I know this is a moral one because honestly, my moral universe it it, it would look like the Kingdom of Ooh. Um Yeah, there it is. That helps things make sense So we're always living in the present tense It seems unforgiving when a good thing ends But you and I will always be back then Um, So the next one's instrumental That's um, Sketches of a Fern by Incorruptible Bodies. Um, oh, the next one. Huh. The next one. There we are. We've got dancing. <laughs> All the trees that grow so fair Old England to adore Greater are none beneath the sun Than oak and ash and floor Oh, and the last, yeah, the last, so the last two are, are definitely much more, I think typical of stuff that comes later so um there's a leonard cohen song which is come healing And then the last one, a similar terrain, I'd have thought, yeah, um, Nick Cave. I don't believe in an interventionist God. But I know, darling, that you do. we are doctor so having bared my soul what's the verdict <laughs> uh, actually actually that was um th- that was easier than i anticipated although nick cave could prove to be a more challenging issue here he's got a bad boy past hasn't he <laughs> <laughs> no you see it's the algorithm would probably tend to associate this uh, kind of lyrics or annotate let's say this lyrics more in the in the areas of authority or purity 
Um, but overall, the kind of songs uh, you, you you shared with us, and thank you for sharing those. I, th- I think we can agree that they were more on the smooth acoustic side, not very dynamic. So those were the kind of audio features that uh, were very good predictors of like individualizing values. So things like care or fairness. Well, thank you so much for an absolutely fascinating conversation. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kate, so much for for inviting me. Uh, Very nice talking to you. And and also, again, thanks so much for sharing your musical preferences. That was really fun. Dr. Haralampos Saitis, lecturer in digital music processing at Queen Mary University of London School of Electronic Engineering and Computer Science and lead author of the recently published Soundscapes of Morality report. Did that interview strike a chord with you? Are you sick of my puerile penchant for puns and alliteration and do you want to complain? Then our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Why so callous about callous, Greece? Despite achieving worldwide renown, 20th century opera legend Maria Callas was barely recognised in her own country. In her centenary year, however, the American-born Greek soprano's legacy was finally recognised by Greece. From Athens, Heidi Fuller Love looks back on a year of exhibitions and openings. Maria Callas was one of the 20th century's most celebrated opera singers. And yet, the soprano whose intensely dramatic portrayals brought her worldwide renown has barely been recognised in her own country. This year, however, Greece has finally celebrated the 100th anniversary of the birth of the woman who was fondly known as La Divina for her musical talents and Tiger because of her intense temperament and tempestuous relationship with millionaire shipowner Aristotle Anassis. A lyrical academy and a brand new museum dedicated to her memory have opened in Athens. Around the corner from the Electra Hotel, I meet the head of the new Maria Callas Museum, Maria Flori. I ask her why it's taken so long to create this museum, which is the first in the world to be dedicated to the great opera singer. Oh, I don't know, maybe political reasons, maybe uh, uh, economical issues, you know. <laughs> there are many factors that can um, postpone uh, the creation of a museum. Maybe, maybe the Greek audience wasn't so much keen on opera, maybe, I don't know. After that, I'm afraid I will give up singing, if not completely, at least very rarely I will sing, only in occasions that will be worth my while, because I really feel that I'm wasting my energy, uh, 
just for the sake of celebrity, which I think and feel I have obtained, even maybe too much. With rooms packed with photographs and portraits, rare live recordings, and a unique collection of personal items, many donated from private collections, this unique museum was certainly worth the wait. We have uh, four rooms uh, dedicated to um, very important areas and performances that uh, Maria Callas um, uh, sang and uh, performed in her career. First we have Norma, then Tosca, uh, Traviata, and the fourth and the last room is um, the room dedicated to her master classes that she gave in Juilliard School in New York mm -hmm. um, in 1971-72. Um, we see also letters from her colleagues, uh, maestros, directors that worked with her. Uh, we also have uh, here at the exhibition theatrical uh, costumes and props. We have two costumes that you can see here uh, from Norma that she performed in 1960 in the Dowers Festival. Uh, we have a wig from Medea that she also performed in Epidaurus, but in 1961. Former opera singer Vasso Papantonio is a huge fan of Callas. She's also battled for years to see the soprano's immense talent recognized in Greece. Bien sûr. I never knew Callas. Of course, I've heard her on the radio and TV, but I never saw her on stage or met her. But I consider her the greatest opera singer of the 20th century. She was Greek, and I'm Greek. So I felt it was my personal duty to create an academy in her memory. Papantonio has spent more than a decade battling Greece's notoriously convoluted bureaucratic system to transform the crumbling apartment block in Petition, where Maria Anna Sofia Cecilia Kalogeropoulos lived with her mother and sister for eight years from the age of 13. It's now the Maria Callas Lyrical Academy, dedicated to helping young opera singers who long to follow in Callas's footsteps. I want to create a school to give her the respect and importance that she deserves for opera, for which Maria Callas is renowned worldwide, so that she lives through the school and throughout time, long after you or me. Over at the lively Stavros Niarchos Center, where the Greek national opera to which Callas once belonged is now based, musicologist Dr. Sofia Kompatiati agrees that Callas should be an inspiration for future generations. She's organizing an exhibition about the opera singer's early life. It's something very exciting that have gave us a lot of knowledge mm. about her life. And I think that will excite the audience as well. And for the young people, because young people, of course, don't know many things. It will be an exhibition that it will be close to the younger generations as well. I think people like her mm. should be you know, inspiration. With a new documentary about those first years of Maria Callas' life due to be released in Athens, and Hollywood star Angelina Jolly recently in Greece filming a biopic about the opera singer, perhaps the diva who wooed the world with her dulcet tones will at last be recognised in her homeland.
Heidi Fuller Love, D.W. Athens. Twenty twenty three was Maria Callas's centenary year. Twenty twenty four is Kafka's. If you wake up on January first feeling like you might have turned into a giant insect, then you know what's going on. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We have three more cultural curiosities for you this half hour. First up... This is Zagreb's Museum of Hangovers and this is the place to come if you want to explore your relationship with alcohol. The weird and wacky world of Zagreb's museums for, well, just about anything. It's 2pm. We haven't yet started tasting but all the gelati are now in. They all have numbers on them. They're completely anonymous. We don't know what flavours they are and who made them. Ben, nice work if you can get it. Reporter Danny Mitzman gets herself a place on an Italian gelato jury. And finally... Why the Taliban are banning music? There's nothing against music in Islam. It's feared that music can send very important messages to far, far corner of Afghanistan. And music can assist the people of Afghanistan with a national uprising against the Taliban. Portugal plays host to Afghanistan's pioneering music school in exile. From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe. Where in the world can you top off a visit to the Museum of Broken Relationships with a trip to the Museum of Hangovers? The answer is Zagreb, the capital of Croatia, a country so open to visitors that tourism accounts for about a fifth of GDP. Most Croatian holidaymakers tend to head for the coast, but Zagreb's determined not to be outdone. It's got one of the zaniest collections of museums imaginable and new institutions are springing up all the time. Guy Delaunay is our guide. When we're talking about Zagreb's quirky museums, well, this is the one which started it all. It's the Museum of Broken Relationships and it's been operating in this old building in the upper town of Zagreb since 2010. And as you walk in, you see all the residue, the detritus from relationships which didn't go the distance. I'm standing next to a red racing bicycle. There's a pair of boots next to that. Along the wall, there's a character, a doll from the Moomins. And as you go through, there's all sorts 
of weird and wonderful things, all of them curated by the team here, including one of the founders, Drajan Grubišić. We start on the lighter note uh, with the introductory stories that are short and, and funny and that kind of get you into this. And then the more you walk into the museum, we get into deeper and heavier and harder stories connected to family, loss, uh, war. Coming to the end, you, you, we go up again and finish on, on a, a lighter note or with the hopeful stories, uh, stories that you, you will get out of the museum uh, feeling better, not worse. Just standing behind you, I can see a sign which says, 27-year-old scab from my first love's <laughs> wound. Imagine keeping such a thing. Well, uh, yeah, and the, the, the story is even funnier because she's a biologist or something and she was madly in love and at one moment she had a doubt of what would happen if something happened to him. So she decided she might take some physical part of him and maybe sometimes clone him. Isn't that a great idea? So that, that's what the scab is You call for. it a great idea, I call it distinctly <laughs> odd. And she's not with him anymore, because, of course, it's a broken course, relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. That sounds to me like a narrow escape, frankly. And not for her. Other meaningful exhibits include a plush Snoopy, an axe, and an espresso machine. The Museum of Broken Relationships may or may not have been Zagreb's first offbeat institution, but it's certainly blazed a trail for others to follow. Since its opening, Zagreb has gained museums dealing with torture, chocolate, selfies and illusions, and that's just a sample. So how does the city feel about its status as the European capital of bizarre museums? Museum of Broken Relationships was the first icebreaker. After that, we soon got the Museum of Illusions, a museum of mushrooms. Now here you see the Selfie and Memories Museum, so there are really a lot of quirky ones. Daria Dragoya is from Zagreb Tourist Board. We take pride that Zagreb has more than like 50 museums in city center, all in walkable distance. I guess the people decided and they saw the opportunity to open uh, the museum that offers something else. And the experience that they are offering to visitors is really something that attracts people to go to these museums and have a good time. And what's it doing for tourism in Zagreb? They are the additional value to our tourism offer. Uh, when people come to Zagreb, they decide to visit one they usually they don't have at home. This is Zagreb's Museum of Hangovers, and this is the place to come if you want to explore your relationship with alcohol. My name is Rino Dubokovic. I'm founder of the Museum of Hangovers. So the concept of the museum is like one night out. So it starts with the bar, and it goes through the whole phases of the night. And also along the way, you'll, you'll get through the street, park, uh, the drunk room, blackout. And we have in the morning, like, wake-up room, like, hangover room. And also in the end, we have a bit, like, a educational part, which is kind of like, I will now drink again part of the morning. We actually want to present, uh, like, a whole 360 image of the alcohol to people. That's very public-spirited of you, but you're also selling booze. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like optional thing. But yeah, the, the main message is it's to see 360, so like responsible drinking. So just so people know what they are getting into when they drink. 
And if you're wondering what it's like to visit the Museum of Hangovers Stone Cold Sober, well, personally, I was glad I didn't have that day after the night before feeling while interacting with exhibits that monkey with your vision and balance. Hopefully, they have a good clean-up team. Guy Delaunay, DW, Zagreb. Yeah, please don't vomit in the Museum of Hangovers, especially since our next story is all about ice cream, the sticky, full-fat Italian stuff. Danny Mitzman, Inside Europe's self-styled food guru, has been looking back at one of her very own personal highlights of 2023. That time she got made an offer she couldn't refuse. No, we are not suggesting that Danny's journalistic integrity has been in any way compromised. What we are saying is that she got tapped to stand on the jury of an international gelato competition. And when it comes to gelato or ice cream, it's not like Danny had much impartiality in the first place. It's the culmination of the annual Sherbet Festival held in one of Palermo's most beautiful piazzas, transformed for three days into a sweet and creamy wonderland. Hailing from Europe, North America and Asia are 44 gelatieri, or artisanal gelato makers, each hoping to win the coveted Francesco Procopio Couto prize. And I'm one of just five jurors tasked with deciding who gets it. If you're curious, the award's named after a 17th century Sicilian chef dubbed the father of artisanal gelato. Francesco Procopio Couto opened the world's first ever gelateria in Paris in 1686. The eponymous prize name's a bit of a mouthful, but so is tasting 44 flavours. I arrived on Friday, but the competition wasn't till Sunday, so I had time to prepare. I did so by attending every possible demonstration, presentation and tasting workshop on the programme, as well as visiting the stands and sampling quite a few flavours for practical training. Excited as I was, knowing my fellow jurors included a professor of gastronomy, a food scientist specialising in sensory analysis and two gourmet food writers, I felt a bit underqualified. So I sought advice from expert gelatiere Roberto Lobrano. Not only does he teach gelato making, he's written a 380-page manual with a detailed technical guide to tasting it. You need to be, as much as you can, neutral. For example, if I have to judge yogurt gelato, which is a flavour that I don't like... I must put myself in a very special mood. So I judge the product uh, with terms of uh, structure, scoopability. I like that word, scoopability. Yeah. (laughs) And the balance of the sugar, the cold sensation that you have in the palate, and balancing of all the elements that you feel. So acidity, 
sweetness, creaminess, etc. Roberto's neutral special mood lesson was to come in useful for tasting flavours with ingredients like sheep's cheese, donkey's milk or, I kid you not, Toscano cigars. To me, flavour is like music. So if there is a melody, it means that the flavouring are coming one after the other, different, so create a melody. But flavours must be also good together in the same time, like a harmonic chord. In tune. In tune, right. Because sometimes uh, people want to put many things in to be creative in some way, but you must be also harmonic, otherwise it doesn't work. Roberto suggested I stop every few flavours to drink a bit of preferably sparkling water to, as he put it, reset my tasting organ. I was actually more worried about how my blood sugar would react, especially when Roberto told me... To be efficient, you should taste many, many times. Once I was in a jury of Granita, the Sicilian uh, original slash, and we had to taste uh, 35 chocolate Granita, all the same. That must have been really hard. Very hard. Also because they made a mistake in the schedule and we had to redo it the same day, so 70. Crazy. But we we did it. (laughs) Ah, it's a tough job, Roberto. And it's my turn tomorrow. It's 10am, we're about to start the competition, and I had a savoury breakfast to prepare for it. Well, we haven't even started and the girls have already bonded. We've even moved our name badges so that we're all sitting together. My name is Maria Rosaria Bruno. I'm a journalist from Fine Dining Lovers. It's not my first time in a challenge like this. I've already been in other jury to judge uh, gelato and panettone and risotto because, of course, uh, in my life I write about food, so it's my specialization. I think that in this case we had a lot of flavors. 44 <laughs> flavors to taste is really too much, maybe. I don't know. It's 2 p.m. We haven't yet started tasting, but all the gelati are now in. They all have numbers on them. They're completely anonymous. We don't know what flavors they are and who made them. So you can't buy off the jury. You definitely can't. Having waited four hours to start, I really can't wait now. In the end, we had to whiz through with just a 15-minute toilet break after 22 flavours. But it was fun, blind tasting, then looking at the list of ingredients to see if I'd perceived them all. Black truffle, lavender and pumpkin were easy enough. Persimmon, polenta and lichen, definitely more challenging. Now they have a part they call storytelling, which is when each of the gelatieri tell us about the flavour and why they made it, what's in it, what it means to them, etc. So another hour and a half, probably. Well, we've finished our work. Now we're just waiting for them to let us know the scores, who's going to win the prize, which is a prize of nothing but being named first prize winner at Sherbet Festival.
And while we waited, I had a chat with Maria Rosaria and another fellow juror, Michele Fino, who's a professor at the University of Gastronomy in Polenzo. I would say an experience with no comparison in the past of my life. Actually, something really different because tasting so many gelatos during a single day is something unexpected. You've been on other juries. Yes, I've been in many juries for other types of product, but mainly my tastings are made with regard to wine or beer, cheese, but very rarely with gelato. That is a particular type of product because I don't consider it a product. I consider it like a dish. So something you taste like the creation of a chef. It was also interesting to see how people, for example, uh, from uh, Canada, but with Italian origins, uh, try to make a link between their new country and their own country. So it was very interesting. Some flavors uh, were very traditional, but they were very good. <laughs> Some others were more uh, brave. In my opinion, they were the more interesting because, I mean, you are in an international challenge, so you have to try to do something different, maybe something that can tell uh, something about your land, but also something that can um, astonish the jury. And the flavour that clearly astonished us the most since it got the winning total score was a Belgian chocolate gelato sweetened with acacia honey and coconut sugar, spiced with cinnamon, pepper and chilli and rippled with a cocoa mucilage sauce. Completely mad but undeniably melodic. Danny Mitzman, DW, Palermo. I love you. È stata una chimica subito appena ci siamo incontrati e quindi siamo stati bene. Completely mad, but undeniably melodic. I have absolutely nothing to add to that, Danny Mitzman. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Sento il tuo cuore che batte Un respiro ci scioglie come il vento che accarezza le foglie in un giorno caldo d'estate. The Afghanistan National Institute of Music is the country's first and only music school. When the Taliban seized back power in 2021, they vandalised and closed it. But still, it lives on in exile. DW's Lisa Louis visited the Institute's new European base in Portugal, where some 270 pupils have managed to find safety. A flat in Braga, Portugal's third biggest city in the north of the country. 14-year-old Zora and Farida are having breakfast with their uncle in their brown-tired kitchen. The three of them, whose last names we are not mentioning for safety reasons, fled Afghanistan together in 2021. Soon, the music students will be embarking on a concert tour across Europe. We'll spend 17 days in Switzerland and Germany, Farida tells their uncle. 
Farida and Zora are Hazaras, an ethnic group persecuted by the Taliban. The two cousins grew up together. They were the first ones in their family to study music, their uncle Juma tells me proudly. Listening to music automatically makes people happy. When music is removed from life, many elements that constitute the foundation and quality of life, such as joy, also fade away, leaving only room for grief and sorrow. This family's music, that's perceived as forbidden by others, should be brought into the mainstream. Back in Afghanistan, the Taliban are restricting women's rights more and more. Women are no longer allowed to go to cafes or public parks. The Islamic fundamentalists have also shut down beauty salons. That makes the girls' music even more political, Farida tells me. I'm that one person who's very lucky than others girls that in Afghanistan. And I can be the voice of Afghan girls or women. After the Taliban came back to power in 2021, the music school's director, Mr. Sarmast, was desperately trying to find a safe haven for his pupils. He appealed to the US, the UK, to Germany, but the first country to step up was Portugal, happy to take in all of his pupils at once. And so they arrived here in Braga, known for its beautiful gardens and architecture, and now also for harbouring the new headquarters of the Afghan National Institute of Music. On this sunny Tuesday morning, the two girls walked to school singing a Persian song about an occupied land. At the Braga Conservatory, their fellow students are already tuning their instruments. It's the dress rehearsal for their European concert tour, during which they'll be performing pieces about the suffering of the Afghan people under Islamic extremist rule. Portuguese conductor Tiago Moreira da Silva is impressed by the young musician's determination. Let's go to bar 63, please. 63. Okay? During breaks, I'll tell them to go out and get some fresh air, but often they'll stay inside and keep making music together, improvising a little. In their country, they had to fight to attend music school and to make music at all. That's completely different than here. So they're teaching me to respect music more. For them, it's really an act of freedom, whereas we just take it for granted. The school's founder and head teacher, Dr. Ahmad Sarmast, is present during most of the rehearsal sessions. The 61-year-old ethnomusicologist was in Australia when the Taliban took over Afghanistan in 2021. From there, he organized the evacuation of the students to Portugal, as he knew his music school would have no future under Islamist rule. When I'm asked normally by the media, they said, why the Taliban are banning music? Is it a religion? I said, oh, there's nothing against music in Islam. It's fear that music can send very important messages to far, far corner of Afghanistan. And music can assist the people of, uh, of Afghanistan with a national uprising against the Taliban. They, they are well aware of the power of music because they use music. They've got their own singers, which price bombing, suicide bombing, killing in their songs. Farida stays behind to rehearse a bit longer. Meanwhile, her cousin Zora 
practices on her own at home, as she's a bit nervous about their upcoming concert trip. It's not a little concert. Or orchestra is a, it's the voice of people from Afghanistan. It needs to be very good. But that's a big weight on a 14-year-old's shoulders. Zora shows me pictures from Afghanistan on her tablet, first of the house where she grew up. Oh, this is uh, the place where I was born. It's very big. This is our own house. I miss this. No, everything. The culture, the, 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 the place where I was born, my family. I really miss them. Sometimes I cry. Uh, especially the first time I was cried like a week. Uh, at night, no one knows. Really, no one knows? No. Why did you cry in front of others? I don't like. I don't like to upset my ankle. Yes. Do you, you need to be strong, right? Yes. Farida has come back from school. While sitting on a couch in their living room, the girls look at photos and videos of the day they left Afghanistan in 2021. It was their second escape attempt, as they had had trouble getting the right papers. That day, they boarded one of the few charter flights out of the country, first to Qatar, then to Portugal. Their escape was financed by supporters of the music school. Farida remembers all too well how anxious they both felt that day. We were a bit afraid because uh, then the past time we had some videos of uh, our uh, choir in the TV shows and then we was afraid of that and then that's why we were scar we were scarf and also mask. You were afraid that they would recognize you. And yes. Stop you. Yes. And also I had a, a music instrument that was a violin with with myself and also I was afraid of that that if some. Uh, some of the tall come to us and then say, what is this? It was a huge relief to be able to finally escape from the country ruled by the Taliban. But Zora says she also left with mixed feelings. We were very happy because we could leave Afghanistan and start a new life, perform our music again and achieve our dreams. But it was very sad too. We had to leave our family and couldn't come back to Afghanistan. As the two are still looking at the pictures, Zora's mother calls over WhatsApp. She's still in Kabul. A dozen of their family members remain in Afghanistan. The girls talk to Zora's mother as often as possible. She tells them what life is like in Afghanistan now, where even five-year-old girls must be fully veiled. We are afraid that the restrictions could increase. We are afraid that if they find out you're playing music and performing, we have to leave here before they know it. We are always afraid. School principal Ahmad Sarmast knows that such conversations are hard to bear for the children. From his office in Braga, he's working to get as many of their family members out of Afghanistan as he can. This is my request to the office of the Prime Minister of Portugal. The Portuguese government has already granted his request for visas. Some 300 family members should arrive in Braga in the coming weeks. First of all, to make the happiness of the children complete. Another 100, around 150 women will be saved. 
the women who lost everything in Afghanistan by reuniting them with their children here, with their brothers and sisters here. We also helped them to get their dream back. The mayor of Braga, Ricardo Rio, says the city will be happy to also take in the families. It would just be a continuation of an existing tradition, he tells me. Our city has always been taking in many refugees. There are 130 different nationalities who live in Braga, with foreigners representing 20% of our local population. And we want the children who had to go through so much hardship to be reunited with their parents. That's obviously also symbolic. They have lost their freedom in Afghanistan and they are winning it back in Braga. Meanwhile, the young musicians are trying to give as many concerts as possible, like here at Geneva's prestigious Victoria Hall, where I meet the students a few days later. It's the first stop on their European tour. They are performing alongside Western musicians. Here's school director Ahmad Sarmast again. To play a concert itself is a protest in a country of a, a musician from a country which is forced into silence. And by the end of the day, it's also about the celebration of the victory of the Afghan people, that these dark days will be gone. Then Zora and Farida too hope to return to their homeland, to a new Afghanistan, where they can live out their dreams. Lisa Louis, DW, Braga and Geneva. And on that note, we end the programme and indeed the year. We'll be back in 2024, a crucial time for the continent with European elections looming. So to make sure that you don't miss anything, you can, of course, subscribe to our podcast. We're on all the usual channels, including YouTube via DW's new podcast channel. Do let us know as well if you have any ideas or requests for the coming year. Our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer Jürgen Kuhn. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. <laughs>